You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 99 Dangers of Every Kind. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in the waiting days of 1806. Napoleon and the Grande Armee were in central Poland. Spirits were low. Poor weather had turned every road in Poland into a morass of mud. The army's logistics system had failed. Napoleon's headquarters estimated somewhere around 40% of his forces were absent without leave, roving the countryside looking for food. Not only were the men hungry and freezing, the army had been struck by dysentery, killing hundreds and leaving thousands of survivors weak and miserable. Their new Russian opponents had proved far more tenacious and resourceful than the hapless Prussians. The Grande Armée still had not lost a major battle, but their victories in this phase of the war so far had been bloody, unimaginative, and mostly indecisive. The largest of these Pyrrhic victories came at the Battle of Putusk, fought the day after Christmas. The French had launched two punishing frontal assaults against tough positions, both of which had failed to dislodge the Russians. The enemy commander, Count Levin August von Bennigsen, ordered his army to withdraw in the night, allowing Napoleon to claim victory. But the French had been badly bloodied, and Bonaparte's greater strategic plan to trap Bennigsen behind the Narev River had failed. This disappointment at Putusk was finally enough to convince Napoleon to end this madness and order his troops to make winter quarters. The army would fall back towards its main base of operations at Warsaw. A grenadier of Napoleon's Imperial Guard would later remember, quote, When we halted about three miles from Warsaw, we were in a perfect state of starvation, hollow-eyed, sunken-cheeked, and unshaven. We looked like dead men risen from the tomb. The people of Warsaw received us with open arms, but they could not do much for us. The emperor allowed us to rest at this beautiful city, but this short campaign of fourteen days had aged us ten years, end quote. It might have brought the French some small comfort to know their Russian enemies were just as miserable. A few days later, it was New Year's Day on the Russian calendar, and, not too far away, a young Russian officer made some sad reflections in his diary. Quote, Another year has passed in discontent, sorrow, hardship, misery, and dangers of every kind. It brought me no pleasure or joy. End quote. 
constant fighting in wretched conditions had taken a toll on both sides. Everyone involved was in desperate need of some well-earned rest. But, as we'll see, fate had other plans. While the spearhead of the Grande Armée prepared their winter camps, other French forces were still fighting for smaller secondary objectives. As I mentioned several episodes ago, before this war started, the Prussians had chosen to put a lot of their forces into fortified garrison cities, spread out across their country. In the panicky weeks after Jena and Auerstedt, many of these fortresses had surrendered without a fight. But by now, the Prussians had begun to regain their footing, and were determined to hold on to the last few free provinces of their country. As he led the Grande Armée into central Poland, Bonaparte had bypassed many of these fortifications, leaving them to be surrounded and besieged by less experienced and less reliable second-line troops. For the last few weeks, these second-line forces had been laying siege to Prussian cities and towns all over western Poland and the Baltic coast. These men were mostly foreigners, provided by Napoleon's German allies, or raised from the Kingdom of Italy or the new Confederation of the Rhine. They were led by one of Napoleon's younger brothers, Jerome. Jerome was just 23 years old, and, like his men, he needed practical combat experience before he could be truly useful to Napoleon. Jerome was not happy about this assignment. Quote, I have received less glory than anyone, end quote. But throughout the winter, his troops made slow but steady progress, sieging down these fortifications. On January 6th, the city of Breslau, or Wrocław in Polish, surrendered to the French. Napoleon immediately ordered Jerome and these second-line troops north to besiege the cities of Danzig, Graudens, and Kolberg along the Baltic coast. If the Grande Armée hoped to pass the winter in this part of the world, the food and supplies stored in those fortresses would be important. But for now, it would be largely Germans and Italians doing the fighting. The veterans of the Grande Armée finally had a chance to rest, and the officers had the opportunity to enjoy Warsaw, one of the great European cities of this era. The people of Warsaw still felt that glow of warm feelings that had been unleashed when Murat's troopers liberated the city. The French got a warm reception everywhere they went. Napoleon toured the military hospital to raise the spirits of his wounded soldiers and pay a visit to his friend and aide, General Jean Rapp, who had been wounded in the recent fighting. We last saw Rapp at Austerlitz, where he led the forces that repelled the last desperate charge of the Russian Imperial Guard. Rapp was just 35, but this was the ninth time he had been wounded in the service of his country. Amazingly, all nine of those injuries had been to his left arm. What are the odds? Napoleon tried to cheer him up. Quote, well, Rapp, you are wounded again, and in your unlucky arm, too. End quote. Rapp responded, quote, No wonder, sire, we are always amidst battles. End quote. Napoleon said, quote, Perhaps we shall be done fighting when we are 80 years old. End quote. This was just a little light-hearted banter, but perhaps a bit revealing. As you might remember from last episode, upon Marshal Murat's arrival in the city, the nobles of Warsaw presented him with an antique sword that had once belonged to the great Polish king, Stephen Batory. Murat had been embraced, celebrated, and flattered by basically every Pole he came into contact with. 
This was largely sincere. As we've discussed in past episodes, many Poles admired the French, and regarded them as comrades-in-arms. The arrival of the French army in Poland was a moment of hope and liberation. But they also had good, pragmatic reasons to lay it on pretty thick. They knew their country's resurrection was still not a sure thing, and wanted to do everything in their power to ingratiate themselves and their cause to this powerful man who was close to Napoleon. Their flattery had worked so well that Murat left Warsaw with dreams of taking the crown of Poland for himself. Now, the emperor was present in the city. No single person on earth was more important to the dream of a revived Polish state. By this stage in his career, people were thinking of Napoleon as an unstoppable force, a person whose will could remake reality. Now, the Russians were on the run, the entire Prussian state smashed, and the Habsburg army totally shattered. Many Poles believed convincing Bonaparte to throw his full weight behind the Polish cause was the most important remaining task to rebuilding their country, the final missing ingredient. Marshal Murat had been bought off with an old sword and a little flattery. Napoleon would not be manipulated so easily. The eminent men and women of Warsaw racked their brains for ways to get the emperor's attention and win his sympathy. There were thousands of people all over Europe who wanted to ingratiate themselves with Napoleon, with a whole variety of motives, some pure, some otherwise. How could the Poles stand out from the crowd and ensure their cause remained at the top of his agenda? Around this time, someone had an idea. It was a distasteful idea, but a good one. It was well known that Napoleon had a weakness for beautiful women. His extramarital affairs were the subject of gossip all over the continent. Perhaps, with the proper introductions, Napoleon could be convinced to invite Poland into his bedroom. This would have all kinds of benefits for the Polish patriots. A Polish mistress could whisper into Napoleon's ear about her country's desire for freedom, and provide a discreet, direct back-channel for communications between the Polish nobility and the emperor. If he became infatuated or fell in love with this woman, those emotions might predispose him to generosity towards her country. And, of course, there would be the possibility of a child. Napoleon still had no children of his own with Josephine. He was quite close with his stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, who had grown into a capable young adult under his stepfather's guidance. Many assumed Eugène was being groomed for the succession, but that was not a sure thing. Josephine was getting old. If she and Napoleon had no offspring of their own, a natural-born child by a Polish mistress might be in consideration for the French succession. If Napoleon's empire endured and was inherited by a half-Polish noble raised in Warsaw by these crafty aristocrats, Poland's future would be assured. Failing that, the old Polish monarchy had been elective. The kings had been chosen by the Sejm, an assembly of nobles, not by hereditary succession. If, at some point in the future, a new Sejm was convened and elected Napoleon's own child as their monarch, would the emperor really refuse them? So, as you can see, this type of shady dynastic intrigue could do more to assure the success of the Polish cause than any battle or act of government. Any moral objections were quickly cast aside. The Polish aristocracy was willing to do almost anything to secure their country's freedom. 
what was a little sordid sexual politics compared to the lives of tens of thousands of people and the fate of an entire nation. And, to be blunt, this was not an era in which adultery was taken very seriously by the upper classes of Europe. Still, even setting aside the issue of marital infidelity, there is something quite unsavory about this idea of serving a young woman up to the emperor like a roast ham. On the other hand, people were dying every day for the dream of Polish freedom, sometimes in their thousands. All kinds of moral lines were being crossed to secure that dream. What was one more? These devious Polish nobles soon settled on a perfect candidate. 20-year-old Countess Maria Walewska. She was beautiful, small, slim, and fair, with a face like a Hollywood star and big, piercing blue eyes. She wore her curly, light-brown hair up in all kinds of outlandish styles, as was the fashion of this era. The Countess came from an eminent noble family. She had a first-rate education and was fully steeped in all the manners and social graces of the aristocracy. She was fun at parties and conversant in all the cultural and intellectual topics that would have been expected of an aristocratic woman of this era. And, like most of the Polish elite, she spoke French. In short, she had all the qualities that a man like Napoleon might find appealing. Unfortunately for Maria, like many women of her class, she was forced to marry out of duty, not love. Her family had fallen on hard times. They had their titles and lands and an illustrious history, but not much else. Their beautiful, intelligent, vivacious daughter would be able to marry anyone she wanted. Ensuring she found a rich husband was the family's best hope to prevent a slide into poverty and disgrace. And so, at age 18, Maria was married off to Count Athanasius Walewski, 68 years old and on his third marriage. As you might imagine, this did not turn out to be a good match. In fact, it was barely a marriage at all. The Count was in poor health, and he and Maria lived mostly separate lives, leaving her more or less free to act as a pawn in service of the Polish cause. Countess Walewska's backers managed to enlist a key ally, the wily French foreign minister, Talleyrand, who agreed to put her on the guest list for a party he knew Napoleon would be attending on New Year's Day, 1807. Sure enough, the emperor asked the young countess for a dance, and was completely smitten. The very next day, he wrote her a letter, quote, I saw only you. I admired only you. I desire only you. A quick answer will calm Napoleon's impatient ardor, end quote. As you can see, when it came to romance, he liked to come on strong, just like in every other endeavor. Most women didn't resist, but Maria Walewska was not most women. According to some sources, she did not find Napoleon charming at their first meeting and was not interested. Other sources say she was playing coy. She wanted to be the emperor's mistress and the object of his romantic attentions, not just another conquest. In any case, she did not respond. Two days later, the emperor wrote to her again, quote, Was I mistaken? You have deprived me of sleep. Oh, grant a little joy, a little happiness to a poor heart that is ready to adore you. Is it so difficult to obtain an answer? You owe me two. End quote. It is quite remarkable to imagine the master of Europe, the greatest Western soldier and statesman in generations, writing this way to a 20-year-old. But even Napoleon had his weaknesses. 
Eventually, the Countess relented. Perhaps she always planned on giving in to Napoleon's affections, or perhaps she really did have to be coaxed into it. But throughout early January, Bonaparte looked for little excuses to send his faithful, exacting chief of staff, Marshal Berthier, away from headquarters, so he could spend time with Maria while he worked. Despite the, frankly, creepy origins of their relationship, there was apparently real affection between the two. Unfortunately, there is a lot of uncertainty about this romance between Napoleon and the young countess. She wrote memoirs, and after her death, her second husband published a book about her life, supposedly based on her correspondence. But the consensus among modern historians is that neither book is reliable. We do know that this relationship was important to Napoleon. There were many women in his life, but few of them made a bigger impact than Maria Valevska. Their association would continue on and off for years. She even followed him into exile in 1814. We will have more to say about her in future episodes. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. While Napoleon was enjoying his time with his new mistress, events were already conspiring to take him away from her. The emperor had only just ordered the Grande Armée to make winter quarters, but before January was over, they would be back out on campaign. The order to make winter quarters had been predicated on the idea that the Russian armies were on the march back to their own territory, looking to rest and consolidate after the hard fighting of December, just like the French. Many Russian officers had advocated this course of action, but they had been overruled. In fact, the Russians had only fallen back a few miles, just barely out of Napoleon's reach, and were planning their next move. By now, the hapless Marshal Mikhail Kamensky was gone. According to one story, shortly after the Battle of Putusk, Kamensky had been so shaken that he had left his headquarters alone, gone to the rear, found a random civilian doctor, and began stripping off all his clothes, showing the doctor all the scars from his decades of military service, and demanding a letter declaring him unfit for duty. The British soldier, politician, diplomat, and general man of affairs, Sir Robert Wilson, was with the Russian army around this time, and he reported, quote, Kamensky has been declared mad by a council of officers. His acts of insanity, indeed, were so unhappily patent that no sane man, hearing the evidence, could come to any other conclusion, end quote. Obviously, Kamensky was distressed cracking under the pressure of command, and it seems he was acting out in hopes of being replaced. But he probably shouldn't have bothered. Emperor Alexander had been very impressed by General Bennigsen's performance in December, and was ready to place him in overall command. 
from the Russian emperor's letter to Bennigsen, quote, The superior talents you have demonstrated at Putusk give you new claim to all the confidence that you have already inspired in me. I can only give you the greatest proof of it by naming you commander of the entire army that was under the orders of the field marshal. I have no doubt that you will entirely justify the choice that I am making for you, and that you will offer me further occasions to prove to you all of my gratitude. Receive, General, the assurance of my esteem. Signed, Alexander. End quote. As I mentioned in the most recent dispatch, Alexander had known going in that Marshal Kamensky was incapable, so this might have been the plan all along. In any case, the Russian emperor believed he had found the man to beat Napoleon. Bennigsen was only eight years younger than Kamensky, but as we've already seen, infinitely sharper. Bennigsen had no intention of marching all the way back to Russia, or even of stopping for the winter. He believed the French were vulnerable and intended to launch an offensive as soon as he was able. According to Russian intelligence, the Grande Armée would be positioned roughly in the same way they had ended the campaign, poised for another strike through central Poland, when the weather and supply situation permitted. And so, Bennigsen would shift his forces to the north, and advance along the Baltic coast. This region was a bit more developed than central Poland, with more cities and towns. Much of it was controlled by Bennigsen's Prussian allies, and many of the locals were ethnically German. Bennigsen hoped it would be slightly easier to advance through this territory, and that his army could be at least partially supplied by stores from the Prussian garrisons, and by sea through the Baltic ports. With Napoleon's forces still aligned towards central Poland, Bennigsen hoped to hook around their advance units and hit their left flank with everything he had. It was a bold plan, risky but strategically sound, and it was the last thing the French would be expecting. Napoleon himself specialized in this type of maneuver. But all was not quiet in the French camps. There were not one, but two men conspiring to interrupt Napoleon's new romance with the Countess. Bennigsen was one, the other was one of Bonaparte's own marshals, Michel Ney. As I've mentioned in past episodes, in an army full of aggressive commanders, Ney may have been the boldest. He didn't agree with Napoleon's order to go into winter quarters. In spite of the horrible conditions and the army's mediocre performance over the preceding weeks, Ney wanted to keep up the pressure. He believed the enemy was weak and did not have confidence there would be enough food to support his corps if it stayed stationary for several months. Like Napoleon, he thought the Russians were in full retreat, heading for the border. Ney believed this meant the Prussians were vulnerable. Remember, the only reason the French had stopped short of occupying all of Prussian territory two months earlier was that they were wary of advancing so close to the Russians. Now that the Russians were leaving, Ney believed it was the perfect time to strike at that last sliver of Prussian territory along the Baltic coast maybe even take their last remaining major city, Königsberg, to drive King Frederick William and the remains of his court into exile. Napoleon's orders were clear, no more offensives until further notice. He wanted his men resting and reorganizing for another major campaign in the spring. But throughout history, insubordinate commanders have always found ways to disobey the spirit of their orders without technically violating the letter. 
In Poland, in January 1807, Marshal Ney's excuse would be a foraging party. Everyone knew the army's supply situation was precarious, so who could object to Ney's Sixth Corps sending out parties of men to secure more food? A close observer of Ney's camps would have noted that the bulk of his entire force seemed to have been chosen for these foraging parties, and they all seemed to be moving in the same direction, rather than splitting up and fanning out over the countryside. It certainly looked like a fresh offensive, but to anyone who asked, this was a foraging party, nothing more. By January 17th, Ney's men had reached the town of Heilsburg, roughly 80 miles or 130 kilometers from their winter camps, and only about 40 miles or 65 kilometers from the Prussian stronghold of Königsberg. Ney knew he didn't have the resources or the position to sustain a major operation. He was hoping that without the support of their Russian allies, the Prussian forces would simply crumple, as they had two months earlier. Ney's orders read, quote, If you find enemy forces ready to fight, which will render this attempt fruitless due to the weak means at your disposal, you must consider retreating so as not to compromise your troops. Consequently, you will direct your withdrawal to Preussisch Eilau. End quote. So not even the aggressive Marshal Ney was envisioning this foraging expedition resulting in a decisive engagement. He was seeing what he could get away with both with the enemy and with Napoleon. And so, Bennigsen's forces and the 6th Corps of the Grande Armée were both entering the region of East Prussia at roughly the same time, neither expecting to find the other. When Bonaparte learned of Ney's little foraging expedition, he was furious. You know Napoleon was really angry when he made Marshal Berthier do his talking for him. Berthier was a master at giving a clean, clear, professional reprimand. Napoleon knew himself, and knew his own temper. He would likely lose control if he confronted Ney personally. Berthier told Ney, quote, His Majesty orders me to express to you his censure, and, indeed, regards you as having disobeyed his orders. Marshal, the Emperor has no need for advice in drawing up his plans. No one knows his thoughts, and our duty is to obey. End quote. But it was too late to pull back. On January 19th, the advance guards of Ney's and Benigsen's forces blundered right into each other. As you might imagine, this threw both headquarters into spasms of confusion. The enemy was not where they were supposed to be. When Napoleon learned of this encounter, his rage at Ney only grew. He believed the wayward marshal had provoked this offensive by the Russians. With the benefit of hindsight, we know he should have been thanking Ney. If Sixth Corps hadn't gone off on this unofficial offensive towards Königsberg, Napoleon would have been unlikely to detect Bennigsen's attack until the Russians were already around the left flank of the Grande Armée. On January 24th, the Russians got good intelligence that Marshal Bernadotte and the main body of his corps were at the town of Morungen. According to some sources, they had stopped there partially for rest and regrouping, but mostly so that Marshal Bernadotte could extort money, supplies, and other valuables from the local Prussian civilians. Whatever the case, the Russian commander in this area, General Yevgeny Markov, saw an opportunity and pushed his forces towards Morungen hoping to force a major battle. 
The light cavalry of the two forces made contact just after noon the next day, a few miles outside the town of Morungan. Bernadotte's horsemen charged, but were countercharged by the Russians, who chased them all the way back to the main French line, before their charge was stopped short by the French artillery. The French cavalry were reinforced, and now it was their turn to chase the Russians all the way back to their lines, where the French attack was, in turn, stopped by Russian artillery. Meanwhile, the infantry of both sides advanced, and the battle began in earnest in the mid-afternoon. On paper, Bernadotte should have been badly outnumbered, but only a fraction of the Russian army was actually concentrated around Morungan, so in practice, the two sides were roughly evenly matched, both just shy of 10,000 men. Much of the fighting was centered on the small village of Farsfeldchen on the Russian right flank. The French assaulted the town from two directions, but Markov's men resisted bitterly. The 27th Light Infantry Regiment of the Grande Armée lost one of its eagle standards in brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat. But, once the men saw the Russians take control of the eagle, they rallied and rushed towards it, recapturing the standard, and eventually taking the town. Meanwhile, Bernadotte received fresh reinforcements, which he deployed for an attack on the opposite end of the line, on the Russian left flank. This attack made good progress forcing General Markov to expand his line, using up reserves and pulling units away from the center. With the enemy's center and reserves critically weakened, Bernadotte was ready to make the killing blow, a frontal attack to punch right through the middle of the Russian line. Napoleon himself was very fond of this style of battle. Whatever else you can say about Bernadotte, he was not a bad general. As dusk approached, Bernadotte's center began the attack. They should have had just enough time to finish this before the battlefield was plunged into darkness. Then, Bernadotte and his staff began to hear the last sound any Napoleonic general on the verge of a victory wanted to hear, musket fire in the rear. While the vast majority of Bernadotte's forces had been distracted by Markov's offensive, a large body of Russian cavalry had moved around their flank and stormed into the town of Morungen itself. Bernadotte had left behind a small rearguard in the town to protect against exactly this type of maneuver, but they had been taken by surprise. By the time the French garrison attempted to rally, there were already hundreds of Russian horsemen galloping through the streets. Those who attempted to resist were killed. Most simply surrendered. A young Russian officer would later remember, quote, The Sumsky Hussar Regiment and the Kurlansky Dragoons slipped in as quietly as possible. Exploiting the incomprehensible carelessness of the French, we galloped into the middle of the town, shouting wildly, without finding a single guard post. You can imagine the shock and horror of the enemy quietly resting there. We had our hands full to capture or cut down the half-clothed French pouring out of the houses. I myself captured 14 men that night. End quote. As soon as he heard the sound of gunfire in his rear, Bernadotte halted the advance and began ordering his units back towards Morungen, but it was too late. By the time the French began arriving back at their base of operations, the Russians had been in control of the town for quite some time, and inflicted a great deal of damage. They had discovered several hundred coalition prisoners, who had now been freed and were on their way back to Bennigsen's lines along with hundreds of French prisoners, including some high-ranking officers. There had also been plenty of time to loot the Corps' baggage train, 
huge amounts of food, equipment, weapons, and even the personal belongings of the French officers had been looted, along with a great deal of alcohol, of course. According to one source, the leading citizens of the town had been preparing a banquet in Marshal Bernadotte's honor, which was eaten instead by a few lucky Russian cavalry troopers. It's a good story, but I have to wonder if it's true, given that Bernadotte was miles away at the main battlefield, and would not have been able to make this dinner engagement, even without the cavalry raid. But worst of all for the French, the Russians had gotten their hands on all that money Bernadotte had been extorting from the cities and towns of this region, tens of thousands of francs worth of loot, and the Russians made off with all of it before the French arrived to stop them. The Russians would later claim they had found all this wealth in Marshal Bernadotte's personal baggage, strongly suggesting he had been planning on taking it all for himself. Bernadotte vehemently denied this, and he may have been telling the truth. He was generally considered one of the least corrupt of Napoleon's marshals, so stealing this much money would be a bit out of character. Furthermore, how were the Russians supposed to know where all this money was going? Did Bernadotte leave a note? Did the cavalrymen stop to do a little forensic accounting? In any case, once the main body of Bernadotte's corps began arriving back in the town, the Russian cavalry made a hasty exit. They had done what they came to do. There was no need to stick around for a pointless battle in the dark. The whole affair was an embarrassment for Bernadotte and his corps. Once again, the French had technically won the engagement, but the Russians had managed to make them pay dearly for their victory, and the battle had not been decisive. Both the French and the Russians lost somewhere between one and 2,000 men, with the Russians suffering slightly worse. Those are high numbers when you bear in mind the relatively small size of the forces deployed. Benningsen and his officers were encouraged by the results of this raid, but they would have seen things differently if they knew that to the south, Napoleon was planning to set a trap of his own. This unexpected Russian offensive presented an opportunity. In striking out for Napoleon's left flank, Benningsen had exposed his own left flank. The Russians were counting on the element of surprise to keep this flank secure. If everything went according to plan, Napoleon would not be aware of this weakness until they were already on top of him. He would be forced to react to their main thrust, and would not have the time or resources to seize the initiative and exploit their open flank. However, even after the element of surprise was obviously lost, Benningsen chose to press on. Napoleon wanted to rest his forces and fix his supply problems, but he was always ready to change his plans at a moment's notice. He immediately began rallying the Grande Armée for a march on the Russian left. He may have been caught flat-footed, but fate had given him a golden opportunity to turn the tables. He would not waste it. He ordered Ney and Bernadotte to keep falling back. These two corps would provide just enough resistance to convince Benningsen his plan was working, and draw him further to the west. Meanwhile, Napoleon and the rest of the Grande Armée would gather to the south, then push north into Benningsen's left and rear as he chased Ney and Bernadotte. On January 27th, the plan went into action. The Grande Armée's winter quarters had lasted less than a month. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Almost immediately, the French began encountering the same problems that had plagued them in December. Bad weather, bad roads, freezing temperatures, and logistical problems that grew worse with every step forward. Meanwhile, Bennigsen remained totally ignorant of all this activity to the south. The Russian advance continued along the Baltic coast, and to all appearances, things were going quite well. French rearguards were brushed aside. The advancing Russians won several major skirmishes against the outnumbered men of Ney and Bernadotte's corps. Once again, Napoleon's units found it difficult to move with any speed. But for the next few days, everything went more or less according to plan. Bennigsen continued the advance, still unaware that every step west took his army deeper into danger. The Grande Armée made slow but steady progress towards that unguarded flank. December had not seen the Grande Armée at its best. You could be forgiven for wondering if Napoleon had lost his touch. But this plan was vintage Bonaparte. In spite of the conditions, and in the face of a much worthier opponent than he was used to facing, it seemed the Emperor was on his way to another surprising, unorthodox triumph. And it stayed that way for just four days. On February 1st, there was a tiny skirmish, not even a skirmish, an incident, an encounter, that would change the course of this entire campaign. Far from the two armies, in the no-man's land between Ney and Bernadotte's retreating corps and Bennigsen's advance guard, a group of marauding Russian Cossacks had a bit of good luck. They encountered a French messenger. As soon as he saw the Russians, the messenger tore off the other direction. But, as we've discussed in past episodes, the Cossacks were some of the best horsemen in the world. They rode small, nimble horses bred for speed. It didn't take long for them to catch up. At this point, the young messenger panicked. He was a fresh replacement, inexperienced, and only recently arrived from France. According to one source, this was his first time actually seeing the enemy. Now, he was all alone, being chased down by the most feared soldiers in all the coalition armies. Once his death or capture became inevitable, the messenger only had one mission— to destroy the sensitive documents he was carrying to Marshal Bernadotte's headquarters. In his panic, he failed to do so. The messenger was captured by the Cossacks, along with everything he was carrying. Unfortunately for the French, that packet of messages contained copies of Napoleon's entire offensive plan, the location of every unit in the Grande Armée, and the march routes they were supposed to take as they slammed into the rear of the Russian army. It also contained correspondence, which shed light on the thoughts and deliberations of Napoleon and his most senior commanders. It didn't take long for the significance of these documents to be recognized. Soon, they were on Bennigsen's desk. He immediately called a general halt. Russian units began turning around, hoping to rush east before Bonaparte could spring the trap. The retreat was so hurried that the Russians had to leave behind a whole convoy loaded with brandy much to the chagrin of both officers and soldiers. Quote, Since not everything could be drunk quickly, most of the barrels were smashed. Several of our soldiers stayed there, lying dead drunk next to the barrels, and ended up prisoners of the enemy. 
end quote. Bennigsen's surprise had been spoiled by Marshal Ney's impetuousness. Now, Napoleon's surprise had been spoiled by a tiny squadron of Cossacks. However, the French still had no idea they had suffered this intelligence disaster. Napoleon assumed Bennigsen was still moving west. The emperor set the final objective, Allenstein, a major town containing the only reliable crossing points along the Alla River. If the Grande Armée could secure those bridges while Bennigsen was still on the west bank, the entire Russian army would be trapped behind the river. Napoleon would be able to force them into an engagement on his terms, and destroy them at his convenience. After a week of slogging through the mud, French cavalry arrived at Allenstein on February 3rd. Securing the area should have been easy. The bulk of the Russian forces were supposed to be several days' march to the west, still chasing Ney and Bernadotte. However, these scouts found the area crawling with enemy soldiers. According to locals, the Russian army had begun arriving from the west days earlier, and was already well into the process of crossing the Alla River. Clearly, Bennigsen was in retreat. It was immediately obvious to Napoleon that his trap had failed. He still didn't know exactly how he had tipped his hand, but something had gone wrong. Still, Bonaparte ordered an immediate attack on Allenstein, a frontal assault to pin the Russians down, combined with a flanking maneuver to take them from the rear. Enemy resistance was fierce, but the plan worked like a charm. The remaining Russians were forced over the river with heavy casualties, abandoning all their cannon, and even some of their wounded. The French were able to seize vital bridges over the Alla intact. It was a good performance by the Grande Armée, but it was too late. This was only a rearguard. By the time the fighting stopped, Bennigsen's army was long gone. Then, as if to add insult to injury, it began snowing. But the Emperor would not abandon this offensive, not with the Russians so close and on the run. The Grande Armée would pursue Bennigsen east. The next day, Napoleon received troubling and somewhat surprising reports from the north. The Prussians were on the move. It seemed they were looking for a way to push south, presumably to link up with their Russian allies, and add their 15,000 or so men to Bennigsen's ranks. At this stage in the campaign, Napoleon was overestimating the size of Bennigsen's forces, and thought he was already outnumbered. He believed he couldn't afford to allow these two forces to join up. Marshal Ney and his corps were no longer needed to serve as bait for the trap, and so Bonaparte sent them north to deal with the Prussians. Ney moved with his typical speed and aggression. Soon, the Prussian commander, General Anton von Lestock, found himself in a desperate retreat, chased by a much larger and much faster enemy. He was forced to leave a rearguard at the town of Walterstorf, hoping to buy himself a little time. When Ney caught up to them, they were totally annihilated. The entire rear guard was killed or captured, along with all their supplies and equipment. However, the battle had not been a total rout, like the Prussian defeats of late November and December. Despite being badly outnumbered and obviously doomed, this rear guard had fought relatively well. Their sacrifice had bought General Lestock the time he needed to escape with the remains of the Prussian army, although it was now down to under 10,000 men less than 5% of the total number of troops mobilized at the beginning of this war. To the south, the main body of the Grande Armée was still hot on Bennigsen's heels. There was confused skirmishing between the Russian rearguards and the advancing French. 
A Russian officer described one of these encounters, quote, At dawn, the enemy attacked us in superior numbers, and we could hardly maintain order. The enemy struck our position, and our left flank was only able to hold its ground by charging with the bayonet, although that caused casualties. The 7th Division, whose retreat our rearguard now covered, moved in complete disorder, its transports blocking the road and causing delay. We fell back slowly, fighting until late into the night. Passing through forests in the dark, we became so confused that the only way to distinguish enemy from friend was by shouting. End quote. Another Russian officer remembered the misery of this retreat. Quote, what I would not have given to sleep in the snow for a few hours during these night marches, but even that could not be. The weary soldier would instinctively sink to the ground, only to get up in a few minutes and do as many more paces. End quote. On February 6th, Marshal Murat's cavalry caught up to a significant Russian rearguard under General Michael Andreas Barclay de Tolly at the town of Hof. There was infantry and artillery under Marshal Soult nearby, due to arrive later in the day, but Murat didn't wait. As soon as his men were ready, the Marshal himself rode forward to lead a cavalry charge. He was still wearing that ostentatious Polish warlord costume we discussed last episode, complete with a jewel-encrusted riding crop. He must have made a tempting target, but Murat must have had a guardian angel because the bullet sailed all around him, but he remained unhurt. Accounts differ on the exact sequence of events that followed, but we know this much. The Russian cavalry rode out to meet them, and were defeated, with heavy casualties. The French charge continued, but was stopped short by strong musket fire from the Russian infantry. Marshal Murat was instinctively aggressive. He immediately ordered another attack, this time with heavy cavalry, the armored cuirassiers under General Jean-Joseph d'Autpoule, who was famous as one of the most daring officers in the French cavalry, and for being the tallest and biggest of all of Napoleon's generals. Marcelin Marbeau, a young officer who we've quoted from several times in past episodes, described what happened next. Quote, the slaughter was fearful. The cuirassiers were furious at the losses sustained by their comrades of the hussars and dragoons, and nearly exterminated eight Russian battalions. All were killed or taken prisoner. The field of battle was a horrible sight. Never was a cavalry charge so completely successful. To testify his satisfaction with the cuirassiers, the emperor embraced their general in the presence of the whole division. Dotpool exclaimed, The only way to show myself worthy of such an honor is to get myself killed in your majesty's service. End quote. After leaving the emperor, Dotpool had some more colorful words for his men. Quote, the emperor has embraced me on behalf of all of you, and I am so pleased with you that I kiss all your asses. End quote. However, the Russians were not totally annihilated. Much of their force had been able to form squares, and shuffled out of the path of Dotpool's charging cuirassiers, while they were busy cutting down those units who were unlucky enough to be caught out of formation. And so, the French attacked again, this time with infantry support. But the Russians had been reinforced and were able to hold them off. Nightfall stopped the fighting, and by the next morning, the Russians were gone. Casualty estimates of the Battle of Hof vary wildly, but it seems both sides suffered badly, with, once again, the Russians getting the worst of it. 
General Barclay himself was wounded, although not seriously. He and his men had managed to do their job and hold off the French, but they had come very close to destruction. On top of all the human casualties, the French had also captured two battle standards and some of the Russian artillery. The battle was technically inconclusive, but it must have felt like a defeat for Barclay and his men. In the wake of this close call at Hof, Bennigsen decided to finally stop and make a stand. He chose the town of Preussisch Eilau, ironically the same place Marshal Ney had designated as the fallback point for his foraging expedition a few weeks earlier. Just as he had at Putusk a month earlier, Bennigsen had found good positions on high ground, and would dare the pursuing French to attack. Bennigsen's reputation among modern historians could be better. If you dig into the literature, I think the word you'll find most associated with his name is mediocre, and that's the word I used to introduce him. But I'm not sure that's totally fair. He still had yet to win a single major victory against the French, and I don't think we've seen anything from him that I would call brilliant, but there haven't been many blunders either. When was the last time we saw an enemy general give Napoleon this much trouble? Back in 1797, Napoleon had faced off against Archduke Charles, who most historians consider very capable, and the young Archduke lost every battle quite convincingly, and failed entirely at his overall objective of slowing the Army of Italy's march into Austria. Granted, Bennigsen was fighting in much more favorable conditions, but there was no disputing the fact that he and his army had proved much more formidable adversaries. Perhaps Emperor Alexander of Russia was right to place so much faith in him. Perhaps the coalition had finally found the man who could stand up to Bonaparte. There had been so many close calls in the last few months, times when the Russians had been almost able to defeat the Grande Armée. Was Bennigsen honing in on a winning approach, or was this a mediocre general, blessed with good luck, a good army, and getting a boost from Napoleon's misfortunes and the rotten Polish weather? After all, this is not the first time we've seen Napoleon and his forces fail. He experienced setbacks in almost all of his campaigns, and had even come right to the brink of disaster several times, particularly during the First Italian Campaign and in Egypt. At the Battle of Marengo in 1800, the Austrians had come so close to victory that their army had actually begun celebrating on the field before the French turned the tables at the very last minute. So, were these just a few more close calls? Or had the Russians finally begun to answer the riddle of Napoleon and his seemingly unstoppable army? Perhaps this coming confrontation at Eilau would clarify things. But that will have to wait for next episode. Before I go, we have a few items of business to take care of. First off, I want to give a big thank you to Dr. Alexander Mikabaredzi. Some of you are probably already aware of him. He's one of the best scholars currently working on this period, and has written some great books, which I would highly recommend. His most recent effort, along with another scholar named Paul Striedelmeier, is the first ever English translation of General Bennigsen's memoirs titled Confronting Napoleon. As you can probably imagine, given where we are in the narrative, I was really looking forward to getting my hands on this book. But its release kept getting delayed, and soon it was going to be too late for me to read it before writing these episodes. 
So, Dr. Mika Beredzi was kind enough to give me an early look at it, and it has been a huge help. So, if you enjoyed this and are looking forward to next episode on iLau, it would be a nice gesture to go pick up one of his books. I can almost guarantee you will enjoy it, and without his help, these episodes would not have near as much depth or color, so we all owe him. Next, those of you who listened to these as they came out may have noticed some changes in the advertising over the last few weeks. That's because we have moved to a new network, Airwave. I won't go into too much detail here. I don't think this is thrilling listening for you guys, and it's going to be old news by the time a lot of you listen. But the headline is, this is good for the growth and long-term sustainability of the show. You've probably already heard some promos for other shows on the network. If any of them have sounded interesting to you, I would encourage you to check them out. Because we're all on the same network, it actually helps this show when they get more listens. Airwave has a huge variety of shows. A few that have caught my eye are The Underworld, which is about organized crime, The History of the Great War, and Ben Franklin's World, which is about my personal favorite of the so-called Founding Fathers. You can go to airwavemedia.com and see the whole selection. Lastly, I will be back to you in a few weeks with another dispatch. I think these have been a big success so far. I've been enjoying them, and the feedback from the listeners has been universally positive. If you haven't signed up yet, I hope you'll join us. Anyway, that's all for now. As always, thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.